I'm Simon Rimmer, and this is the final episode in the current run of Grilling, the podcast brought to you in association with Weber Barbecues, which I get inside the minds of some of our best-known chefs and food aficionados. We've had so much fun talking about cooking both indoors and outdoors with the likes of Ainsley Harrier, Marcus Waring, Gok Wan, Naji Hussain, and the Hairy Bikers. We've also given away 10 premium Webers with one more to be won today. There have been tips of plenty too and some great barbecue recipes emerging from our chef's challenge. So our final guest in this run is one of the industry's most charismatic figures. Adam Richmond is an actor and TV personality best known, of course, for his amazing show, Man Vs. Food, in which he'd take on outlandish eating challenges in each episode. Self-educated food fanatic and trained sushi chef, he's kept a journal of every restaurant he's eaten in since 1995. He's also a very good friend of mine. He's a Tottenham fan, which is the only thing that like puts our friendship <laughs> to the test every now and again. Uh, and whenever I'm in New York or wherever he's here, we always meet up. And my kids love him, Adam. It is so good to see your face. How are you, my friend? So good to see you, buddy. I'm glad you guys are doing well. I miss you. Uh, you too. I mean, it's, it's been too long. In fact, last time um, I saw you, I was in New York with some of my team, and you took us to an incredible, tiny little Japanese bar and restaurant. And I've been to New York once since, and you were out of town, and I tried to find it and couldn't. Oh, uh, shall I tell you where it is? Yeah. Okay, so it's called Decibel, D-E-C-I-B-E-L. It's on East 9th Street in the East Village. And then I actually took you guys to another little underground place, which is arguably one of my favorite bars in New York. It's called Lovers of Tomorrow. And it's oh, like... yeah. Is that almost got just a little pink neon heart outside it? Right, and you go down through yeah, the yeah, yeah. And there's even another club behind it, which was closed that night called Cabin. Like so there's a club within a club there, uh, but yeah, it's it's Lovers of Tomorrow. It's behind the iconic uh, Niagara Bar that Joe Strummer was so fond of going to. Uh, I, I so, mean, uh, it, it, incredible night. I mean, we were a little worse for worse, so a lot of those details <laughs> are, are very very vague. Also, one another time, uh, dear listeners, when I was in New York, um, myself and the kids and Adam and all of our families, we were out together, and Adam stole sweets with my children at uh, Soho House. Uh, that's there you go. Just so there you go. That's the caliber of the man. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was trying to help them. They couldn't like. They were trying to like the gummy sharks. I remember Hamish yeah. one of those gummy sharks. I was trying to hook him up. And you know, <laughs> and also we had the best time in that photo booth, but it was also oh, for yeah. me because you know, I, I mean, being a quarter English, but only having really gone there regularly recently, you know, through the shows, uh, you're very much my, my conduit for football knowledge, for uh-huh. food knowledge about that. And, the funniest thing was I had walked past this really beautiful restaurant in Manchester two or three times and both my manager and I loved it. And then you texted me the, when I was like, oh, I finally got to go here. You're like, hey, you're in my restaurant. I was like, wait, you own this place? <laughs> and uh, for yeah. those of you listening, um, absolutely go- like gor- the gorgeous, the, the Thank you. arguably one of the most attractive and eye-grabbing fronts to a restaurant. And I'm not Bless saying this because I'm your friend. I'm saying this because I want your money. No, I'm saying this because honestly, it's it's just so striking, and I I, I really hope that the hospitality industry gets returned. So you guys, uh, you guys are in tier four now. So I hope that you guys oh, really yeah. get a chance yeah. to. Uh, well, well, in fact, before we kind of get into the the nitty gritty of, of of your life, how, what's happening in New York then? Where where are you with all the COVID stuff at the moment? I'm trying to stay as locked down as as possible. 
you may have noticed I'm no longer maintaining my spelt soccer A2014 physique. I'm, I'm aiming for something, something, I guess maybe towards like a later Ronaldo is the bold one. More like Ronaldo McDonaldo. And I'm, no, so I'm trying to keep it, uh, you know, a little bit long. I'm currently filming a new show for the History Channel and COVID protocols are pretty intense in, in the States. What's the new show on? Um, it hasn't been announced yet. I'm just holding that to oh, okay, say that right, it's on okay. History Channel. Fine. But uh, actually, the one that I can announce, because there's two on History Channel, is the second season of The Food That Built America. And then I have two new digital. I have the second season of Biscuit Reviews from an American that you didn't even ask for. Yeah. And I have um, another series coming on IGTV uh, called Adam's Garden of Eaton. Those I can't talk about. But I've been filming in the, the productions in the States now have what's called a CCO a COVID compliance officer. So um, weekly tests, temperature checks, masks on set, um, and trying to film, you know, with a clear map, you know, you're trying to film the day and age of COVID. Yeah. It's tough. Uh, not everyone is mask compliant. Not everyone's really respecting how, how it. How tough is it for restaurants and bars? I mean, you know, we're having a really tough time over here in our industry. I assume that New York has got the same hospitality difficulties that we do. Profoundly. I mean, you know, you have so much of New York that's reliant upon foot traffic. The entire Broadway industry is completely shut down. And there's myriad restaurants just in that one little part of Midtown that rely on both business traffic, like people leaving offices and people going to those theaters, neither of which is happening because everyone's working from home. So the restaurants have now done a lot of outdoor seating things. The problem is now in the cold weather, they're trying to seal out yeah the cold weather but now you're just building another indoor structure and to be fair i don't think the the government's really understanding what's going on so they're making bars to try to serve food it's a very it's a slippery slope so i try to do whatever i can and anyone who's using your your delivery apps tip your delivery people well yeah it, it, it's a tough time all right let's get down to the issue let, let, let's go all the way back i mean because obviously a lot of this we're gonna we're gonna focus on that amazing show Man Vista, which is how you and I became friends. But let's go right the way back. When, when when you were growing up as a kid, what, what was what was the the Richmond household like food wise? Great. I mean, you know, I was very blessed. I had two great aunts who lived upstairs for me. May the rest in peace. My aunt Debbie, my aunt Anne, and they lived upstairs, and they were great cooks. And uh, my aunt Anne was the first person who taught me how to make a, a recipe. Uh, from start to finish, which was a cheese omelet. And for me, having eaten eggs, like hard-boiled eggs or soft-boiled eggs, and then had slices of cheese, to suddenly see these two things become something completely different. And it was just, you know, a little bit of milk, a little bit of salt and pepper, egg, butter, and cheese, and suddenly it was this other thing. And being able to be self-sufficient, my mother is a phenomenal cook. And my dad, may rest in peace, was, was pretty darn good, too, especially, actually, and I'm not saying this because we're doing this, my dad was a Weber man. And um, uh, so, like, he was, like most hairy-chested men, you know, very much king, <laughs> king of the grill, you know, only I know how to arrange the briquettes geometrically. And <laughs> so, yeah, it was, it was great. The other thing is my, my father um, was a really open-minded dude, and he said, you know, in terms of trying other cultures, cuisines, and, and things that I was unfamiliar with, he said, you don't have to finish it, but at least try it. The cool thing the hipsters are saying now is don't yuck my yum. But the truth of the matter is my, my, uh, my dad. I'm writing that down. I am so writing that down. Don't my, yuck my, my yum. yum. Exactly. Okay. 
Right. But yeah, my, my dad had a law office near Chinatown. And I remember seeing things like chicken feet and congealed blood and different types of dim sum. And I was like, Ugh. and my dad pulled me aside and he was letting me know just how kind of disrespectful that was because he said, hey, someone may try one of our Jewish dishes and go, oh, you filthy fish, chopped liver. What the heck are you doing? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, and, and growing up in Brooklyn, you had every first generation immigrant family right there. So I'm having caponata at my Sicilian friend's house. I'm having cocaine and potatoes at the Irish friend's house or, or, or you know, or boxty. And then um, we had Syrian neighbors to the left of our house. <laughs> it's like a new, it's like the new charge of the light brigade. I got Syrians to the left of me, Irish to the right of me, Sicilians <laughs> to the front of me. But you're having kibbish, shawarma, caponata, and then you're like, oh, food's the language. Well, it, it's funny because I remember one of the first times I, in fact, the very first time I went to York, I remember that very thing of just being midtown, nowhere particularly special, staying in a budget hotel, and almost within a block, you can almost eat around the world. So I guess even though then exactly. you very much neighborhoods and cultural neighborhoods, that crossover from a food point of view clearly was there from from very early age. Absolutely. I mean, again, I think that food is this beautiful language. I mean, the, the, the truth of the matter is, Simon, you and I met because people were trying to pit us against each other because Spurs were playing Liverpool and Baltimore. And the irony was, it was the shared, the mutual respect we had for one another because I had seen Sunday brunch and the language of food. And I think that as long as you're open to trying new things, Wherever you travel, you will have uh, a better experience if you explore Fork first. That's been my experience. Do you almost feel there's an inevitability that you've ended up in the food and drink industry? Because I've been um, that with me. And I've, I've been surrounded by food all my life. So, you know, like, you, you know, I, I did a degree in fashion and textile design. You went to drama school. And yet I think I kind of always knew that there was going to be something about food in my life. Well, you you have um, profoundly good knife skills and stuff, so I think your dexterity lends itself. One of the first things, ironically enough, you and I ever made on your show is Scouse, and yeah, like well, I, I, you know, and we and it was we we're both watching each other break down potatoes, and I was like, yeah, yeah he's got yeah. the skills. But I think that, um, you know, I think it stands to reason that you have this design background and plate. Your plating is always, you know, so um, lovely, and 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 there's a an eye towards plating. Um, and I remember, I remember, I'll never forget, because I do hold this compliment, you paid me very close to my heart, when uh, the guys from Red's True Barbecue came on yeah. um, the show and I had to break down the ribs. And I was really making sure I had like good knife skills because I knew oh, it was yeah. you. There was and some I, good work going on there. And I think that that speaks to your design background. And I think that the reason that my shows, thank God, have done well is because I'm informing it with drama, but food is that universal thing. We all can't play like Messi, sing like Adele, but we can all eat. We can, if due diligence is applied, learn to cook something. And I think, I think there's something very special. And, 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 and for me as, as, as an Anglophile to go, oh, okay, Staffordshire oat cakes, scouts, <laughs> white bait, you know, trying different jellied eels, trying different variants region to region that's that's incredibly incredibly special to me personally so you so from school then mm. did you go straight to, to drama college is that what you ended up doing once you once you kind of graduated or what happened next no no so i came out of uh university in 96 in atlanta 
as an actor, uh, a non-union actor, Atlanta was a great place to be. But of course, like most people in entertainment, you the restaurant industry's hours become really uh, great, really conducive for well supporting your life and paying you know bills, those nice things. So I um I had been working in restaurants since I was thirteen because I remember I had asked my dad, I there was like a toy or something I wanted. Or like some josh i don't know what it was and i remember my dad's like oh you want that that's that's nice how nice for you to want that you should go get a job get some money to buy it for yourself so i you know i started working in restaurants bossing tables when i was 13 so on so forth so when i came out of university i had already been doing some restaurant stuff decided i was going to give acting a go and catering and uh working in restaurants just allowed me the freedom and i just learned as much as i could and then um, I was acting and had done some stuff and some regional theater. Then I just reapplied. I knew I needed to take my career to the next level. And I knew going to a good conservatory would get me an agent and increase my chance. Because it's, let's be honest, it's one of those high risk, high reward professions yeah. that you struggle, you struggle, you struggle, and then you break. And then and your income changes, your lifestyle changes, your schedule changes. So um, I'm actually, I think it's so funny is, here I was doing food as my survival job for performance. And then ultimately it was the union of performance and food that became my job. So I, I, I'm, I'm blessed. And I hope anyone listening to this realizes there is a very real way you can make your, your passion, your profession. Because the thing is, uh, the thing I've never known is, mm. so, so you're there, you're working a bit in the food industry, you're, yeah. you're a qualified actor, you're getting a little bit of work, you're kind of doing a little bit. How did mum versus food come about what's the whole story on that all right i'm gonna give you the shortest version of this i know it's hard because i like my mom and i used to say that she and i could go to over talkers anonymous on and on and on and um, <laughs> the, the shortest version is this um i had signed with a commercial agency out of yale and they used to send out these mass emails saying um discovery channel is looking for a blonde bilingual Spanish speaking scuba diver, just something like this. Yeah. And, and, and I never really looked because, you know, I've never had vaulted cheekbones and the closest I ever came to abs. I had four during soccer eight. I never got the full six. And, um, <laughs> I, and so I was like, ah, oh, whatever. I, I, these things aren't for me. And I read a very great book called the Renaissance soul by Margaret Lobenstein. Uh, the surtitle is life designed for people with too many passions to pick just one. And um, I realized that doing food television was actually my passion because I realized that's how I could do it. I was working in TV for Madison Square Garden Television. I was building up my TV resume, production resume. And one of those emails came out, said, looking for someone with food experience, on-camera experience or like on-camera comportment, likes to eat, hello. <laughs> and um, <laughs> never said anything about challenges, knows regional food. And because I've been keeping that food journal since 95 and, and Alton Brown on his show, Good Eats in America had had a culinary anthropologist on his show. And I never knew that such a thing existed. So I lived near the main branch of the Brooklyn library and I read every book I could on culinary anthropology. So when I came into audition, not only was I able, so they wanted us to taste some food, describe it. And Barbara Barna, thank you so much. Shout out to the casting director, Barbara Barna goes, so what do you like eating around the U.S.? And as every actor will tell you, you need to have a little bit of cockiness. So I was like, name a region. And so she's like, well, you're from the Northeast. Tell me about the Midwest. 
And I was like, clickety, 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 like done. Uh And it was, uh, the show was actually meant for another guy. And it was like a six round process. And then we tried to sizzle uh, a pilot episode in Memphis. Um, We rebranded it as the Kooky Canuck Challenge. It was called the Bigfoot Challenge. Uh And I was like, oh my God, I'm going to need to like consult physicians, personal trainers, and and really, because I was out of my depth. And that was it. The pilot was made. We got an overwhelmingly positive response to it. And then they bought 10 episodes. Then uh, three episodes, four episodes in, they bought eight more. And then it was just sort of uh, off and running. So the, the, the very first episode, what was the first eating challenge you had to do? Oh, Jesus. It was a, a burger that... that um, <laughs> they, they had to rename it for legal reasons. It was called the Bigfoot Challenge, which was subsequently renamed the Kooky Canuck. Uh, but it was a, a burger the size of a bar stool cushion. I've never right. seen anything like it in my life. And back in the day, I didn't have any sway. You know, I was the new guy. So they expected me to eat that and then film the next day at Gus's Fried Chicken and then eat Whoa. fried chicken. And I, those first 10 episodes, and I remember getting really resentful whenever people on Twitter did, all you do is travel and eat. And they never realized that not only are you dealing with the physical effects of eating strictly comfort food for these things with virtually no break, is that on top of that, you're also having to push lots of narrative, be compelling on screen, memorize, you know, 10, 20 pages of a script. Like every restaurant you ever saw in Man vs. Food that wasn't a challenge place that only got six or seven minutes of airtime. That's 12 to 14 hours of shooting and myriad hours of prep. So that was the first challenge. But then the real challenges were always like having to do a challenge, spicy or large, then go back to your hotel room, just thinking, you know what I really could use an electric chair. Like (laughs) I just, yeah. Prior to it, had you ever done any food challenges? No, I mean, like Thanksgiving, I guess, you know, sometimes I would eat as much as a small Madagascarian village or something like this. But like, (laughs) I, you know, I've always had a a big appetite. I've I've, only a few times in my life have I truly had a dancer's physique. And, you know, I mean, I I guess I've always really enjoyed food. And now here I was. And bear in mind, like I said, I was struggling. This is the truth. Little, Little inside scoop for Simon Rimmer. Final screen test for Man versus Food was at Katz's Deli. And I grew up going there. But then Katz is, you know, Katz is very, right, really close to where I had taken you out. Pretty expensive real estate. The sandwiches are not cheap. I don't want to make, they're, they're uh-huh. wonderful people, wonderful quality food, go to Katz's. But they're not cheap sandwiches. So I remember my final screen test was at Katz's. I had gone the day before. I interviewed people. I took pictures. I, I did whatever I could to learn, 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 learn. And then I I had this idea and I bought a Katz's t-shirt and I remember like handing over that money to buy it. And I was like, and then like, (laughs) I cut the neck of my shirt out to make it look old. And then I remember going to the laundromat near my home and washing it to spending five bucks to launder it. So it looked Uh old. And as I spent that $5, I remember I was like crushed, like Jesus, I spent so much (laughs) on the shirt. Flash forward to the end of season one. I'm sitting with the senior vice president of the network when he's saying, you know, telling me the other side, the network side of my becoming the host. And he said, yeah, you know, it was you and this other guy. And he said, but then uh, on your opening read of, of the show, he goes, when you unzip that thing and you said, this is my own shirt, 
you know, whatever. And you had that old T-shirt that you yeah, clearly yeah. had forever. We knew this is our guy, and I was like, about that shirt. Brilliant. Brilliant. So now Brilliant. all of a sudden, so now all of a sudden, people. And by the way, the show was originally called Pig Out. I started. I I called it Man versus Food because it was on Valentine's Day, uh, two thousand and eight. Was that screen test? And I remember saying it's a new Valentine's Day massacre between man versus food. And uh, I remember uh, <laughs> you then you suddenly go to like, oh, I'm not struggling for cash, so I could afford these sandwiches. And now I don't even have to pay for them. <laughs> so <laughs> you're like, oh, my God. So for the first 10 episodes, my director, uh, who created 90 Day Fiance, Dan Adler, he uh, he was he was very instrumental to me not dying because suddenly like the guy from rendezvous barbecue in Memphis opens the pit. It's like, have at enjoy yeah. much, yeah. much pork, much chicken, much sausage. You want, you don't have to pay. You have the best effing stuff in the house. Wow. But uh, the, the thing that I always, the, the reason that I kind of fell in love with that show, well, primarily is you Thanks, because God. The thing being that when you look at challenges like that, and we'll come on to some of the allegations that have been made about it kind of, you know, glorifying gluttony. It's not about that. It's about the fact that you're eating good food. I think that's why the show works in the States. In the UK, we don't have that history of that style of thing. Big eating challenges in the UK tend to be poor quality food. But the vast majority of the time, you're eating good quality food. And that is one of the great things that comes across with it, that your love of what you're putting into your mouth, it's not like I'm trying to get through to so, you know what, first and foremost, this is delicious, and here's why it's delicious. And your engagement with the camera and therefore the viewer is what makes you go, I could never do that. I don't want to do that challenge, but wow, <laughs> I, I want to eat, you know, a, a regular-sized portion of that food. And I think that's what, what a lot of people felt. I think, you know, at the end of the day, this, remember, Man vs. Food's first episode premiered, December of 08, 09 was really where the show hit its stride. And up until this pandemic, that was a pretty hard time for restaurant industries as well for any small business, quite frankly. And to know that Man vs. Food was doing 80 to 300% increased business bumps wow. as a result of being on that show during that time, as someone who had you know, I was on unemployment. I collected food stamps. My friend had a restaurant that I eventually worked at in my neighborhood, and I would literally live on the leftover soup and day-old bread from the restaurant for quite a while because, you know, uh, in, in America, when we get educational loans, the fund is called Sally May. I don't know why they gave it uh, this, this, this Fannie Mae and Sally Mae. And as for Sally Mae, I didn't say is she a gold digger, but she ain't messing with the broke, be broke. <laughs> and so I started paying off loans to Yale. A Yale education can be seventy dollars to $90,000. So I'm doing wow. that, trying to pay rent, trying to pay a cell phone bill, paying my, uh, you have an Oyster card. We have a Metro card in this thing. Yeah, yeah. So for my, my train thing. And maybe occasionally trying to like go on a date, have a beer with a friend. So, um, it was a hard road. So then I empathize so much with these businesses and understood the leg up they can have. When you realize that most of these challenges started as a sales gimmick, started as yeah. a means. I mean, they, a lot of them have a really cool background, but ultimately it's about a gimmick to get people in the door and not to get all drama school on you. But, um, you know, Hamlet says um, the readiness is all. That for me, whether or not I won or lost was, I mean, I'm very competitive as you know, but I, I just wanted to 
treat it with the aplomb of like you and your friends are on a road trip. You stop at this great barbecue place. They say, if you eat five pounds of this barbecue, you, everyone's a t-shirt and you and your friends are like, come on, yeah. man, you go around life once let's rip it and grip it. And so I was just trying to treat it like that. And I understand why people might say it was glorifying gluttony because I'm eating five pounds of something and didn't always finish it. And it, and and I'm sure you could relate being a restaurateur that food waste is, has always been problematic. Yeah. From, you know, my, my mentor, Anthony Bourdain, made a made a video, a movie about it uh, called Wasted. You know, the, the important thing for me was to praise the ingenuity of the places, make them sought after. And to be fair, the challenges weren't necessarily always the best quality per se, but the heart of most of these people were just extraordinary. And these were like little tiny, like, you know, Carmel, Indiana and Arundel, Maine and places, Driftwood, Texas, places of Round Rock, Texas, places that were a little far afield, Walnut Grove, California. And if it made people go there and it made people explore these places, that's, that's paying it forward, I guess. But you, you, but you must have never, have dreamt when you've got commissioned to those first 10 apps of it the yeah. impact it would have not only just on those businesses but it, it, in terms of your career it, it all of a sudden people looking again like I, like i said just before that guy is really i want to have a beer with that guy <laughs> that, that, that was the thing was it you know i don't want to put take him on an eating challenge but i want to have a beer with him and it was that common touch that I think really kind of opened the doors for you so much because people wanted to get to know you. I think, I appreciate you saying that, by the way. I think that um, I tell everyone, you know, there was this uh, one executive that that's no longer there that Tony and I were not fans of, who, who like came up to me, you know, what, what's the expression there came into Egypt, the Pharaoh who did not know. And uh-huh. this guy was like, you've created this character. And I'm like, it's not a character. It's just me with the volume turned to 11. That's all yeah. it is. And the other thing is kind of a drama thing is that, look, at the end of the day, I'm eating a big plate of nachos. If I don't raise the stakes and make this super important, why should you care? Yeah. So for me, I needed to sort of live in a place of unbridled joy, the joy of going to a new city, period, finding that little place, finding that dish, learning that recipe. Oh my God, this is a real Philly cheesesteak, real Texas brisket, real Memphis fried chicken. This is the table that Elvis sat at to eat his peanut butter and banana sandwiches. And that alone should imbue the viewer with enough enthusiasm to know two things. One, I'm happy and I'm grateful. Two, I appreciate my hosts. Three, that no matter where you are, respect must be paid. Now, that's the one thing I had. A, that's uh, beautiful. Thanks, yeah. man. I had a reporter from the, uh, the Daily Observer, the New York Observer, say to me, I can't understand this. You are, by definition, a Ivy-educated coastal elite. You know, like you went to <laughs> Yale, you're, you're, you live in New York, X, Y, Z, but how come you have such respect in the heartland? So I said, have you ever used the term flyover country? He said, of course. And I said, right, there is an inherent degree of disrespect when you say that, because you're basically saying to these people, your whole world, your whole purview is just an obstacle for me to get where I'm going. Wow. It's just yeah, flipping yeah. the fly over. Yeah. And the thing is, while I don't think in the past four years, my country has necessarily shown its best sides, 
I think that there is so much beauty to be had in these little lakes in Arkansas and Ocean Springs, Mississippi at the Shed Barbecue and places in, I lived in Montgomery, Alabama, and I've gone to Eufaula, Alabama, Pineapple, Alabama, Gulf, and like Gulf Shores, that there are places that are not New Orleans, Chicago, Milwaukee, big name places that um, have culinary acumen, hard work. Is the one people. that stands out, Adam? Is there, is there one place that you think, wow, if I, if I could go back to one place and not have to do a challenge, just thinking, I love the whole essence of that place i loved what it was about where would you go great question well hawaii is still my favorite place on earth and uh-huh. and i had uh i had gone once before 99 uh with an ex-girlfriend but i um i i love it and i love that there's now a move towards sustainability because the whole archipelago is dependent on imports which is yeah. very very dangerous so i i love that but i think new orleans chicago san francisco uh, Austin, Texas are arguably some of the better eating cities that also have a wonderful foot culture. Portland, Oregon uh, is another one that comes to mind. Uh, there's tons of street food. There's like little, like almost street food. They take over, you guys say car park, but they, yeah. they take over a parking lot. And um, there's, there's uh, a tremendous vibrance to all those cities, either because of the youth or in New Orleans case, you know, you have the music and you have the nightlife and huge rap community. And I remember I lived in Atlanta for six and a half years. So I think those places uh, in particular, but I would say off, off the top of my head, Hawaii, New Orleans, Chicago, <laughs> San Francisco, Hawaii, New Orleans, San Francisco, Chicago, and New York yeah. are my favorite eating cities. Yeah. So, 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 lovely listeners, as uh, as Adam said at the start of this, then um, over talkers anonymous is kind of. Where <laughs> and when you ask Adam Richard, just one place you go back to, gives you a list of six. <laughs> well, it's hard because I go, oh man, I missed like the Po' Boys and the Gumbo yeah, yeah, and R O, but then I go, yeah. ooh, can I really say no to Lou Malnati's yeah. deep dish in Chicago or brisket from Salt Lake in Driftwood, Texas, or you yeah. know the ferry terminal building in SF? I can't. But it's funny because wherever I go in the states, then the first person I will send a little message to, and I'm going to say, "Ad, listen, I'm going to Broadway." Like Austin, Texas, being a prime example. When I went out there a few years ago, which is one of my favourite cities in the world, and the list of places that you gave me, without fail, every single one of them <laughs> was just—you go, you can't get any better than this. Oh my goodness, this has got better. It, it was just <laughs> Thanks, pal. So, so, when you do it, when you were doing man versus food, though, yeah, physically, how far in? Did you suddenly feel, wow, this is actually starting to affect me? Right. I mean, I, I had seen a doctor very early on of my own volition. And, you know, after that first episode, in fact, and I understood, you know, what I was up against in terms of saturated fats, sugars, white flour, carbohydrates, and so on. And also, let's be honest, not every place is using organic grass-fed beef for <laughs> cage-free eggs. You know, it's expensive for a restaurant to do that. So. Um, I had two different physicians that I had gone to in advance. And so we were just like, let's take a prophylactic stance. And um, what can we do in advance of a problem to stave off a potential problem? And for me, I knew that if God forbid anything happened to me, it was the death knell of the show. So I knew that there were A, haters that were wanting me to fail or get sick or God forbid die. And they, I would never give them the satisfaction. So 
after that first challenge, I knew that I had to protect not just it wasn't just about fat and visceral fat around my stomach that that this was going to be about my intravenous health my liver um, my bones also just the, my sugar levels so there were just certain things i had taken in advance and certain steps and then i had a doctor that said i need you to look at one hour of cardiovascular exercise a day like a wow. life-saving pill so the funny thing was everybody would see like me do the show and getting paid and you doing the TV show. And they're like, oh, you must have the best life. And I'm like, no, no, let me explain. Challenges happen. We film for 14 hours. I eat something ridiculously hot or large. <laughs> My crew goes out and gallivants with the waitresses and girls that we were filming with. And they get out and get drunk. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm back in the hotel with a gallon bottle of water on the treadmill in the hotel gym literally with my head on the console and it was like the baton death march of fried wow. chicken so that was the thing it was after that first episode and there were a few times along the way i remember the one at the ballpark where i had to eat between the seventh inning stretch and the end of the game and you know you can't control how those last innings go so yeah. i'm crushing it and you know lovely people but it was like you know stadium food and I remember saying, can I get the burgers medium rare? And they're like, pal, we don't do that here. They're frozen. So we have frozen or cooked. That's your option. I'm like, man, have them, can I have them cooked? And um, yeah, I, I, that one, I, I remember like laying down in bed going, this is going to be rough. But then yeah. I would do cleanses. I would take probiotics, eat clean when I wasn't filming, and off I went. Okay. All right. Well, I want to carry on with that, but um, let's let's have a little let's have a little breather. Well, it's kind of a breather for me, but it's not really for you. So, <laughs> what we do every single episode of Grilling, um, we set all of our guests a challenge. So, okay. the challenge that you have, um, yes, you can have any cut of meat, fish, vegetables. Um, you need to create a rub or a marinade. Uh, we need a sauce, uh, and we need a cold side dish. Uh, and there are two bits of criteria for it. One is that um, it has to be cooked on a barbecue. Mm -hmm. And the second is you have 45 seconds to sell it to me in the way that only Adam Richmond can. Are yeah, you the, up for our challenge, sir? Of course, my friend. Is the, does the cold side dish have to involve the grill as well? Nope. The cold side could be anything. The cold side could be anything you want. You don't have to use the grill at all. It's basically so that so the the grill has to be in there in some way, shape, or form, uh, whichever Absolutely. way you want to do. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. I'm ready. So, do you want the dish first and then yeah. sell it? The dish first and then sell it. I want to be salivating. I want there to be a pool of saliva on my work surface after these okay. twenty five seconds. All right. Okay. Get ready to go. Three, two, one, go. All right, children, you may want to leave the room because some heavy food porns are coming. So maybe because I have Malbec or maybe because I worked in the lovely country of Argentina, but I am going to, oh, okay. A skirt steak that is lightly rubbed with coarse salt, black pepper, uh, a little bit of olive oil on a screaming hot grill with a chimichurri with fresh herbs, bright herbs that will actually accentuate the richness of it with a shaved vegetable salad, slightly bitter greens like rocket, again, dressed with a little bit of avocado oil and some lemon juice, and then here. allowing the bitterness, the juiciness, the herbaceousness, the velvety velute of that all to coalesce in your mouth Three, and wash two, it down with a wonderful malt. Oh, 
There's an expression that we say in these kind of moments, but I can't say it because it's a it's a family broadcast. That uh, was was quite magnificent. So I mean, I know that you love your barbecue. I mean, you did, you did a barbecue show in the UK. Um, have you always been into into grilling? You know what, my father that that I owed to my dad, he mm. was, and he would do things that on a grill that my friends' dads weren't doing. So stuff like uh, little neck clams and cherry stone clams on the grill. Um, a lot of my dad's clients, because he was like the neighborhood lawyer, there was an Italian pork store. So he would get those wonderful pinwheel sausages that had cheese and parsley in them. And he mm. would like put the skewers through them like a horcrux. And he would, you know, wow. flip these Italian sausages on the grill. His burgers were, were magnificent. He's the one who taught me. He's supposed to dent the top so that it makes it level because the uh -huh. steam will bring it up. So, yeah, I guess I... That's I, a really I, good tip. Yeah. You end up with a meatball on a bun. If you make a patty, it rises. So I used to take a soup spoon, smack the top, make like a little divot, and then it evens out. There we go. There we go. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> and, so, and so do you still grill now? Do you still get a chance to do it? I do. And this is not, you didn't know this. This is the truth. I actually have two Webers. I have a Weber smoker I and I have a Weber this. grill on, uh, on my back porch. So I absolutely do. And, um, I've done everything from smash burgers. Like I get a piece of cast iron and that's, you know, the new obsession that everyone's doing is like the white yeah. manna, the restaurant white manna, uh, their smash burger. I've done some lobsters on the grill. Um, I love grilling vegetables, romaine lettuce, uh, really a wonderful little thing that always rewards you well. Corn, um, always great on the grill. And then that's the nice thing about doing man versus food is I've actually learned how to do things on the grill that I otherwise wouldn't. And from that ITV show I did, um, everything from smoking strawberries to yeah. um, uh, smoking, uh, this was crazy. Uh, a chef in Texas did a, a cocktail with smoked ice. And I said, how what? in the world do you do that? Yeah. I'm like, it doesn't, you take a pan of water, you take a hotel pan or whatever, and you can actually put it on the smoker, infuse the water with smoke, then you make the then ice cubes. And it, it, it can accentuate, you know, whether it's a mezcal or bring out a flavor of tomato oh, vodka. I'm going to do that. I've, I've, it, got, I've got one of the, um, the smoke sacks, one of the fire sacks here from Weber, and I smoke everything all the time. I've become quite obsessed with it. I am going to do that. That's great, isn't it? We actually talked about one thing on, um, on Sunday brunch. If you just uh -huh. take, as you would say, aluminum foil, and then <laughs> if you get those little cherry chips, you don't even have to have a smoker. Uh, you basically make like a, a Hershey's kiss, like a little tulip shape, and you put in the wood chips, a little bit of water, and I like to throw in a splash of bourbon, uh -huh. and then you put your finger in and you twist it so it's got a little opening, and you can just set it in the coals, or even in your oven, one rack below that what you're trying to smoke, and it yeah. will impart that flavor. Ah, just heaven. I mean, and also, I mean, you know, this time of year in the UK, then people tend to put the barbecues away, and it's changing slightly, whereas like in the States, you don't do it seasonally. It, it's, it's, a, it's a part of your cooking tradition to, to grill all the time. I think that there's something innate, though. I think what, like a man, food and fire that it's just <laughs> ubiquitous. I went to South Africa and they have something there called Brai, B-R-A-I. Yeah. And it's, it's hysterical because light years from everything I ever knew in terms of familiarity. And yet there is a guy, the ladies are doing the side dishes, the putu pop which is uh, pop is like polenta, uh, uh -huh. the chakalaka, which is basically a relish. And they're grilling things. And 
that's the beautiful thing. If you have temperature control and you're starting with a good product, quality seafood, quality beef, and to be fair, and I, I urge all, every listener, start with salt and pepper. They're not just yeah, afterthoughts. Yeah. Yeah, salt yeah. is a flavor enhancer. Black pepper is an extremely powerful spice. Temperature control, good oil, good butter, red pepper flake. Uh, one of the best dry rubs I've ever had was very simply onion powder, garlic powder, salt, pepper, paprika. That's it. Yeah. In equal measure and a light dusting, but temperature control and good, good base ingredients, you don't really need a lot. So every single one of those flavors will enhance any kind of piece of meat, be it, be it, be it red meat, be it white meat, be it a piece of fish, be it vegetables. All those flavors will come out would just be heavenly. Exactly right. And then, you know, and that's the thing too, with temperature control, you just have to remember with things like fish, I mean, as you well know, that it's just, you know, take it off the heat before it's at the doneness, yeah. the, cu the cuisson you want. So you can, you know, let the fish finish cooking for you. You don't want to get the fish to your level of doneness because the residual heat, I mean, I have to tell you, but for anyone listening that yeah. grills are, can be screaming hot, know your heat zones. And it's as easy as investing in one of those little temperature guns to know what you're working with. Yeah, completely. You know, and, and I think, you know, I want to come back onto um, man versus food, but again, yeah, I think right. that is the thing that when you, when you were in the kitchens with all of the chefs there, this right. is what came across, your, your love of cooking. They clearly weren't just there going, okay, give me that great big burger, give me that really hot sauce. <laughs> you know, you, you knew and had a massive interest in, in what, was, what was happening there. So when you look back, is the is the one I'm sure you've been asked this many times. Your favorite challenge that you came up against, and your least favorite. Favorite was in Alaska. It was a place called Humpy's Alaskan Ale House, and it was because rather than a big plate of one thing, it was a platter of a few different things. Uh -huh. So you didn't get what's called flavor fatigue, which is a real thing. I know that sounds kind of ridiculous. And everything was local, so reindeer sausage. And I remember I asked the chef, "Where do you get the salmon?" And he walked me to the front of the restaurant and we were across from the water. He goes, that boat. I said, where do you get the crab? <laughs> he goes, that boat. Where wow. do you get? And I said, yeah. but it's Alaska. It's cold. Where do you get the berries? He's like, berries do very well in Alaska and Maine. And he said, berries are, you know, third traffic light, hang a right, go down two miles. That's where I get our Great. berries. So that, that was, and it was just wonderful. So eating that was um, really great. Uh, the worst would probably be the Munchies 421, 420 Cafe, the Wings one, because oh, yeah. they were uh, quite a bit cavalier with the ghost chili extract. And to anyone who wants to do these crazy hot challenges, people have lost their minds with the Carolina Reaper and the ghost chili. <laughs> Please be careful because it's so powerful. Police in India have begun to weaponize ghost chili extract in grenades. So Whoa. please, please, please yeah. be careful. Because that, that episode is, am I right in thinking that's the one where once you've kind of done the wings, you then weren't allowed to, you weren't allowed to wipe your face. You then. Oh, that was number two. That's, that's the second ah. one. That's Santa Clara. That was yeah. a place called Smoke Eaters. And that was also hell on earth. But that one, it was somewhat manageable. The, having it on my face was terrible because I ended up with like a, a burn. And yeah. like I, I had done this and I had rubbed it into my hands. I could barely bend my hands, but no, the, uh, the one at Munchies was so bad, my like throat swelled up, my wow. tongue swelled up, and, and you can't be cavalier. The best spice, it's the only spicy challenge I ever lost. Yeah. And um, the, I, I just, here's a little tip from your Uncle Adam. If you're eating anything spicy, even if it's just like a hot bowl of ramen one night uh -huh. or you're going out, 
you know, you're having a, a Ruby Murray, you're having a curry. <laughs> Nicely done. Good. Cheers, mate. Cheers, mate. So, um, eat You've been white rice. For too long. <laughs> right. <laughs> At least my accents get better than when I was doing Ari, when I was doing Ari Redknapp. Very Dick, very Dick Van Dyke. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> right, but let's not go into Chitty Chitty Bang Bang any further. <laughs> yeah. White, white rice will help uh-huh. your stomach when the capsicum hits it. And I will put this as politely as possible. Eating banana in advance will help with an uh-huh. exit with an exit strategy. Very good. You will tips. avoid you will avoid what my cinematographer calls hickory hole or ring sting. <laughs> Who's hungry? <laughs> Love it. All right. So, at what point then? When did you decide it was time to to hang up your eating challenge boots? Um, you know, because I had no no aspirations to be a competitive eater, and those guys are like they treat it like athleticism, and they're inc- they are incredible at it. And you know, the mandate that the president of the network had was, I don't want to see you dunking stuff in bread and doing what they do, you know, at eating competitions. Yeah. I just um, I had the opportunity to do other to branch out, and I guess I just didn't want to be thought of as like a goat, like just sit at him down in front of stuff, because that's what I began to feel like. That's why I I did Man versus Food Nation because people are always saying you should see my uncle, you should see my dad, you should see my 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 husband. So I thought, you know what, these challenges only came on my radar because of the folks that were having their own live, like regular non-TV lives that were making these challenges iconic. Let's throw the spotlight on them. And that was my initial impetus. So it gave me a chance to show I could do other things and still be a host without having to cram stuff in my face. And then I moved on to Best Sandwich in America and Fandemonium. And now, you know, being able to move into History Channel, had I stayed with Man vs. Food, though I think it, you know, it was a very successful franchise, pardon me, I think um, it's still it's, trying to turn it's, this it's thing Dick off. It's Dick Van Dyke ringing to say, what a great accent. <laughs> the old bamboo, the old bamboo. <laughs> um, so in any event, in any event uh, yeah, I just think that it's, um, it wasn't so much that my body, had, that's a misconception. People think like I was like, I was going to die in this. And and who knows what if I was still doing it 10 years later, but... I I needed a change and and I and I know that I have a greater ability as a host and I have more interests as an individual than man versus who would allow me to uh, express so I think that it was just a matter of career growth and not just wanting to be pigeonholed as the happy fun eater guy do you ever miss it yeah who doesn't want to be the number one show on their network you know what I'm saying like that's profoundly important but I think there was also something about like those moments of the challenges because I'm not a professional boxer or athlete with the exception of soccer and walking onto the pitch at Old Trafford. I, um, no offense, Simon. I, uh, you know, I never, you know, you walk on 77,000 people are roaring, you know, and then, you know, Mourinho substitutes me in and you're running out on the pitch. You hear them say your name and people are chanting there's just there's something about that that was very very cool and to know that your performance affected 
the yeah. mood and the demeanor of a lot of people that you may never ever know. So that was cool, but I don't miss the the mass consumption. I don't miss the way I felt after the challenges at all. But you're right. I mean, and it's still on now. I mean, quite often I'll text you and say, "Oh, I'm watching the episode. I thought I'd seen every single episode, and I hadn't seen this one before." And it it's on a constant loop. It's on a constant loop in the UK. So I'm sure in the states it is as well. And 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 in fact, I suppose what, what we what we haven't explained is how you and I became friends. So, so fundamentally, what, what happened was somebody on one night had put, I, I put something about watching Man vs. Food. So I couldn't do the challenge, but I think this guy is really great. And then somebody put something about, there's a bit of tune and throwing. Then Adam very kindly kind of messaged me. And then we just started like speaking to each other on, on social media. Then I was going over to New York about a month later and we met up and we've been friends ever since. And my son, Hamish, who was now 17 at the time, was probably seven, maybe. We've known each other about 10 years, maybe. Yeah. Seven years. It's something like that. Um, and so Hamish was a big, big fan of the show. And I've got to say this to you. The thing I think is always amazing about people, if you like, in the limelight, when they meet people's children, then what they should do is what you did and what Stephen Gerrard did and what Kenny Dalgleish did. So you're in very exalted company there, Mr. Richmond. So when I met Adam outside, we we're going to see New York Red Bulls play. And so Hamish was very excited about meeting Adam. And I see Adam in reception. He comes out and Adam completely ignores me bends down and says, you must be Hamish, and shakes his hand. And to this day, my boy, you know how, what, my, what my son thinks of you. He absolutely adores him. And I think that anybody who has ever got a, a moment when they've met a celebrity and they've been really impressed with them, I would almost guarantee if you're a kid, it's because they do that. As I say, Stephen Gerrard and Kenny Douglas did exactly the same thing with Hamish. So that, that is the whole thing. So that, that is how you and I became friends. So he's a great, he's a great kid. I love that he would like, you know, because you're so steeped in football knowledge and you've enlightened me about food and football alone. So I can only imagine what you've imparted to your son. I'll never forget <laughs> eating it. I think it was a pit queue in London. Uh-huh. And it was, we were yeah. talking about football tricks the, the around the world when you drink yeah, keeping yeah. yuppie and you bring your foot yeah, around, yeah. which if I did it, I'd have been intensive care. And like I mentioned, and bear in mind for the listeners, at this point, Hamish was playing for Manchester City. So I'm like, I'm like, this is that that's hard. And like <laughs> Hamish is like, that's so easy. And then <laughs> somehow I did like, you know, again in America, we didn't have the game. Like occasionally we watch the Mexican division. And Raul got mentioned. Yeah, and I was yeah. like, who? And he's like, you don't know Raul? What's wrong with that? <laughs> I'm like, okay. You know, and I mentioned, I was like, okay, who's Goose Gossage? He goes, I don't really watch basketball. I'm like, he's a baseball pitcher. <laughs> and so there was this great little bit of banter. But he, you know, is such a, a, a good kid. And one of the things that you talked to me about was that he wasn't singular, despite how good he was as a footballer and how dedicated he was to the hard work of it, he was interested in studies and music yeah. and other yeah. things. And, and he's, he's, he's the best. And your da- let's not forget, like, your, your daughter's fantastic as well. Like that, we we have Bless. a whole photo shoot we did uh, in yeah, the photo yeah, booth. Yeah. So I've still got those pictures. They're brilliant. This is this is becoming this is very coming self very self congratulations. Yeah, is there an audience? Is there an but, audience? But, but, yeah. just... but what, what what I wanted to say was that you know from from that point, then you you stop doing man versus food. Yeah, and then soccer aid I want to talk about because you lost an extremely large amount of weight. I mean, I you almost to the point of being unrecognizable. And in fact, that <laughs> day when one of the days when I met you in London, you were eating a very, very controlled diet. 
And I know you did that because of Soccer Aid, but did you also do it because you felt, you know what, I want to do this? You know, you're, you're, a very, you're a very single-minded human being when you want to be. I think it was 50-50. I had seen the rushes for the first day shoot of Fandemonium mm -hmm. at Daytona. And I remember I said to my DP, I looked, I said, could you not shoot me from behind? And then I looked at another shot and I said, please don't shoot me from the side. And then he's like, dude, <laughs> I can't do an aerial food show. You know, at some point, like I can't control whatever. So I had uh, a checkup schedule with my doctor after that. And I had just told him, look, I need to make a change. He had a dietitian in his practice. So that was two years of work before soccer aid, the last yeah. six months of which I trained with the guy who's now Diva Carigi's main coach, my friend, Nikki Hollander, wow. uh, who at that point was training Stephen Ireland, Junior Hoylet, Atuhu, Sal Kalu. And, you know, now he's since gone on to train Sané and Lukaku and whomever. Um, and he's now Divock's dedicated coach. But he, I moved to LA. He had me go vegan. And I'll do, he's from Archway. So this is the last accent I'll try because I heard it every damn day. He would go, mate, lighter bodies, travel faster and jump higher. So get lighter, mate. So yeah. I would, I went vegan. I trained with him. I did two 90-minute sessions with him a day three mile runs with the ball at my feet to work on close control during the rest of the day. And every day I had to send him my weight in the morning, my weight at night. I trained really hard, tore my quad, tore my calf. I mean, I went in, but uh, you know, it's, it's an experience I still think about and to know that at any point I can talk about, and then Jose Mourinho substituted me. <laughs> <laughs> I know I was, I was at that game and, and at the after party. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah. 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 What effect did it have on your mental health, do you think? Because you, you, you've, you've, you've been well documented saying that, you know, you've always, if not shrilled with your weight, you've, you've never, you, you're never going to be, you're never going to be a, a snake-hipped skinny guy. It's not what you're ever going to be. It's in all of the pictures I've seen of you almost through your life, that is the most tone and lean that you've been. I'm not saying that that's necessarily what everybody wants to be, but you were it's super good. fit. Yeah. It felt good. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I'm a clothes horse. So being able to fit things that I wouldn't otherwise be able to fit. I liked the way I looked in clothing. And there was, I guess, a bit of mental satiety, just knowing that I was doing something healthfully for my body. And so I think that that was, that was really big. And because I love the beautiful game so much that I know that I couldn't do the things I needed and wanted to do with a heavier frame. Yeah. Uh, so I think it was a little bit of everything. And the attention from girls is pretty cool too. Yeah. So there was that. <laughs> All right. So, so man versus food is kind of, you know, is what you're known for. But I think since then, I mean, you've said, you know, you, you've demonstrated that you're a host with far more capabilities than having to have a, a huge burger or a really hot chicken wing at, at your mouth. Mm -hmm. So you, your sandwich show that was a massive success. You did Food Nation. You've done Fandemonium. What have you enjoyed most since Mum versus Food? What a great question. Oh, wow. Um, hmm. You know what? I love doing that show, Secret Eats, the one about hidden restaurants and all. Oh, that was a lovely dishes. show. I'd forgotten that. That was a really great one. I, I love doing that because I think that, you know, that night I took you out in the East Village, you know, those are places that I know because I'm a New Yorker, I'm in the food industry, and I'm into crawling and finding these little places. And I feel that everybody deserves to have keys to the kingdom. But recently, I filmed a show for Facebook Watch. We filmed the first season pre-pandemic on Copa 90 called Match Day Menus about food and football all over the world. And uh -huh. for me, that, I mean, it's my two favorite things or two of my favorite things. So 
being able to go to Napoli and have the foods that the fans eat before, during, and after the match as much as seeing them play Red Bull Leipzig. Going to Oviedo versus Asturias in La Liga and seeing the, the flashbangs, the flares, the craziness. And, and to be fair, going to Morecambe. Morecambe, you know, had been voted best pies in England. They were selling yeah. Morecambe's <laughs> pies and Harrods and having Morecambe Bay sh- prawns, you know, Morecambe Bay shrimp yeah. and, you know, the potted shrimp. It was just, there's a slice of life. And I think the way the rest of the world views the beautiful game and um, the way the entire world views food, it's like two, again, two more languages the whole world speaks. And being able to be at the nexus of both of them was huge. It, it's funny, isn't it? Because you, wherever you go in the world, and it's just very different. You, know, you think that the, the culture of kind of food and football in the UK is very much, uh, very sort of low level. You know, unless you go into kind of corporate, it's still kind of pie, it's still kind of burgers, et cetera, et cetera. But I remember going to Italy to see Liverpool play Udinese. And mm. at half time, we were, we were starving. We'd been having a few drinks during the day. And um, at half time, everyone was having beautiful thin slices of ham and some beautiful kind of Italian bread. And then just a small glass of wine. You think, wow. And this is, you know, we're not in hospitality. This is just with the ordinary fans. And that whole thing about the way that the beautiful game almost reflects, which way is it? Does society reflect the beautiful game or is it the other way around? You know, where that food marriage comes in, almost coming back mm-hmm. to the very start of our conversation, that language, that football is that great universal language and couple it with food. And well, you and I are in heaven. Yeah, and, and the fans are the lifeblood of the game. So it's like Napoleon said, an army marches on their stomach. So too does a fan base. And I think that whether it's my, my agent at uh, WME is a, uh, a Spurs fan as well, and he would rhapsodize about going to Nando's. I remember, I remember your son insisting I get a peri-peri wrap. And people telling me, Adam, henceforth, it shall only be referred to as a cheeky Nando's. And, <laughs> exactly. Uh, it's and, absolutely right. But that's the thing. It's that I think, you know, America, we say, buy me some peanuts and Cracker Jacks at the old ball game. And, and now I think people have a, uh, a greater gustatory knowledge. And I think that's why you now have Michelin star restaurants in yeah. the Eredivisie in their, in their stadia. And it's, it's amazing. But I mean, look, in Frankfurt, you're having currywurst and you're having yeah. these sausages and cutlet with, you know, schnitzel with grüne salsa, this beautiful green sauce. So you're having these things and it's, you're getting the full fan experience, but you're also getting a Germanic experience and you're also yeah. getting a specific, yeah. um, a specific regional one. It, it, it's a great thing to do. Well, there's, there's two things left to do with you. One is I, I, almost the starting point for the whole of this podcast was about pivotal moments. And it, it's about that whole thing in your life, whether it be accidental, deliberate, or a moment in your life, you think, right, this is the path I'm going to take. There's a little light here that's saying, this is what I need to follow. And some people have been small, some have been big. And you may not have one that you can recognize, but it is the one that you think, you know what? That was the moment that, if you like, defined your path. Um, I mean, huh, that's a very great question. I, I think it was the moment that I read that email and realized what I had read that email and that opportunity. What do they say that luck is the def- the definition of luck is preparation meeting opportunity. Uh-huh. And I think that I think that was that moment that 
I had seen the opportunity. I had read something and I decided to do something about it. And fortune favors the bold. So I think that was, that was a really big one and deciding to be singular of focus and just like, this is what I want. And that's why that book was so formative. This is the yeah. book I want. And I want to get that last thing so I don't over talk it. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. All right. Now, now the, the, the final thing that, that we do, this is going to be really tough for you because I think of everybody that we've had on grilling, you have got the biggest opportunity to do this. So it's all little kind of secret place. So every single week we, we ask our, our guests to come up with a, a secret place that you will send our listeners to. Try to avoid it being a posh restaurant. It might be a bar. It might be a deli. It might be a, it might be a beach shack. And for you, this is going to be so hard. All the places that you've been to in the entire world. And if it's almost like that place that in your head is your happy place. Thing. Oh, what wouldn't I give to be sitting at such and such a place having that? Where are you taking our listeners? Oh, wow. You are yeah, exactly. You are killing me deader than Dillinger. Uh, what would I say? Because ordinarily I just say come to my mom's house. But uh, <laughs> I don't know. The first one that came to mind, and I don't know why, is this little tiny hot dog shack in Reykjavik. Is that pretentious? No, not at it's all. it's in Reykjavik. So it's so pretentious. Fires. Adam Richmond, isn't it? He's changed. <laughs> oh, did you hear that? Sorry. Yeah, it's, yeah, a, it's, a, it's a hot dog place called Bayard's Bestu in, uh-huh. uh, in Reykjavik, and they just have these unbelievable hot dogs. Uh, I, it was just It's by a construction site. That, I don't know why that was the first one that popped up in my mind, but also I, I would... I'd say, you know what? I, I also say there's a spot in Hawaii called Side Street Inn, and it's meant okay. for everybody. It's where chefs would go after work, pork chops, fried rice, simple but done like home cooking. Perfect. Beautiful. I love it. All right. So, we, I mean, we've covered, we've covered a lot of ground. And, like, you know, I, I, you and I have become very close friends. I think it's, it's been obvious anyone who's, who is listening to this that, you know, not only are you and I friends, but you're a, a genuine sort of family friend. And, you know, I, 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 I love you dearly. So what, what is next? What, what, what happens next in the world of Adam Richards? So we've got the secret one that we can't tell about for the history channel. Right, so I am is there, filming Is there an show? ambition? Yes, yes. Have my own family, have my own children. So uh-huh. I'm, I'm, I'm working on this at the moment. Uh, uh-huh. um, uh, but I also... Um, I want to get back to the UK. I was filming Supperman for the Dave channel when uh-huh. um, the pandemic broke out and I had to come back home. So um, I'd like to go back, finish Supperman, finish the show I'm currently filming. And God willing, if we do this time next year, it will be um, Adam and Baby Mix 3. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, that, that is kind of really, that'll be, that'll be amazing. That'll be I'm looking absolutely forward amazing. To it. Listen, my dear friend, it is- Love you, love you, love, love you. A pleasure to spend time in your company. Uh, and listen, take care and do come and see us soon or I'll come and see you. The minute we can do it, then we need to do either a New York or a UK or somewhere in between and watch some football, eat some you great bet. food, drink a few beers. All right, lots oh, of love, yes. my friend. Love right. to you and your family, brother. Thanks, Adam. Absolutely amazing. Always great to spend time with you. Now, uh, as we mentioned at the start, every episode of Grilling, we're giving away a Genesis 2 gas barbecue and Weber Connect Smart Grilling Hub. Um, Genesis 2 is a premium gas barbecue that makes it easy to get great tasting food. The Smart Grilling Hub is an accessory which connects to your phone via an app. 
It guides you step by step through preparing and cooking, even telling you when it's time to flip your food and when it's ready to eat. It's a serious piece of kit and it's brilliant. I, I use it all the time, I genuinely do. If you want to win one to try Adam's recipe on, which sounded delicious, then you've got one final chance. All you have to do, head to weber.com forward slash grilling. That's weber.com forward slash grilling, where you'll be able to find the terms and conditions and the closing date for entries. Competition is open to UK residents only. Adam, you can't enter. Uh, the Weber website is also the place to find a host of tips for barbecue in all weathers and seasons and a fantastic range of recipes, including pizzas and waffles, as well as more traditional options. Now, do subscribe to Grilling on your favourite podcast app, rate us and tell your friends about us too. And as it's our last episode for now, we'd like to say a massive thank you to all the good people at Weber for being so accommodating and supportive throughout the run. Grilling was brought to you in association with Weber Barbecues and is an off-script production produced by Ben Backhouse and executive producer Zach Brown. I'm Simon Nimmer. It's been an absolute pleasure. Hopefully, we'll see you soon.